Big Brother is watching you. Those words stare at Winston Smith, a keeper of records, no, not the vinyl ones, keeper of historical records in Oceana, the totalitarian superpower in George Orwell's novel, 1984. It's one of my favorite books. Oceana might sound like a happy and bright place, but I assure you, it's not. Just by this, uh, the title, Totalitarian Estate, it is not a happy place. Oceana wants complete and total unquestioning control. One of their mottos is, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. Oceana wants control even to the level of history and even to the level of thoughts of their people. And so that is trouble for Winston Smith because his job as a keeper of historical records is to white out history and alter it so that Oceana is the perennial good guy. But also, Winston is growing more and more miserable at his job. And whenever the telescreens aren't watching, whenever their surveillance cameras aren't watching, Winston writes how he feels in his diary. He has to be careful of the thought police who snuff out any questioners and defectors and recondition them. So Winston is miserable at his work, and he knows he must hide it. But some good things come along for Winston. He falls in love. A co-worker recruits him to the Revolutionary Brotherhood. Maybe there's some hope for Winston. Maybe life won't always be this miserable. Well, I won't spoil it for you. But by the end, hope gets pulled out from underneath Winston. And his last words, after he's captured, after he's tortured and reconditioned, he says, I love Big Brother. Well, in Psalm 73, we encounter Asaph, a Winston Smith type of character. And we can entertain certain parallels between these two figures. Both are under a higher authority and play, you could say, a central role in their regime. Both arrive at a crisis of faith, questioning the goodness of the ultimate authority that is above them. Both exit their crisis of faith, concluding that their authority is good. See some parallels here. But for all their similarities, the situation of Winston Smith and of Asaph ultimately diverge. The thing that makes the difference is their authority, who their authorities are. Now, yes, Big Brother claims to have a godlike authority and power, but what Big Brother claims to have, God actually has. You see, much more is that these authorities, Big Brother and God, differ fundamentally at their core. See, Big Brother only has self-absorbed kind of power, whereas God exercises his power both in love and in justice and righteousness. So Big Brother can't handle any kinds of doubts or questions because at the end of the day, Big Brother is a phony. He doesn't have all power. He, he isn't really good. So he must torture and beat and pummel people to convince them and confess that they are good. But you see, God, on the other hand, at his core, can handle questions and doubts because he has nothing to hide. And he's not a phony. He's real. So he doesn't have to pummel people into submission to have a wholehearted devotion to him. People don't have to swallow their doubts and say what they know actually to be false, to be true. No, God's people can test their doubts, work through them, and arrive at the truth because it actually is the truth. We see that process happen in Psalm 73, working through hard questions about God. If you're not there yet, you can turn to Psalm 73. If you're looking at a Bible that looks like this, the pew rack in front of you, 
you'll find it on page 485. If you're new to the Bible, uh, this is kind of what we do every Sunday. We take a portion of it. Usually uh, we say chapter and verse, chapters, the big numbers, so 73 verses are those little numbers right after it. So anytime I say, we're going to be Psalm 73 all morning long. So anytime I say a verse, it'll be in that chapter. So did you have to speed? Page 45, Psalm 73. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in silvery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. This is God's word. Have you heard of the different love languages before? Kind of popular. Chapman, I think, is the author. Not endorsing or saying it's bad, just if you heard of it. Well, over the last several weeks when we've been in the Psalms, haven't noticed different love languages. We've noticed different life languages. You know, the psalmists, whether it be David or somebody else, speak to God in things like praise. They speak to God in trust and assurance. Always speak to God in prayer. They speak to God seeking wisdom. They speak to God, like last week we saw, in lament. And today... We see the psalmist speaking to God in doubts and questioning. Right at the beginning of Psalm 73, you get the crux of the issue. We see what the psalmist, that's Asaph, what he doubts and questions. God's goodness. For a while, Asaph was unconvinced that God was really good. I would wager maybe you've been here today, maybe you're here right now, and you can sympathize with Asaph's struggle a little bit. <clears throat> Is God really good? Well, Psalm 73 would tell us, how should we wrestle through that? How should we wrestle through questions and doubts about God? Questions and doubts particularly about God's goodness, about his character. That brings us to the main point, I think, of Psalm 73, Wrestling through our questions about God, about his goodness, means questioning our questions. Not shutting it down. Neither are we ignoring it and putting it away. Questioning them. This is being fair. I mean, if you're going to come and question God, 
you need to come and, and question yourself some too. So wrestling through our questions about God's goodness means questioning our questions, and it means going beyond our perspective, going beyond our perspective, taking our eyes off of ourselves and considering what God says, things from his perspective. So for the rest of our time, we're going to follow uh, Asaph's journey of doubt and questioning, and we'll see how he do, does both of those things. Questions his questions and also goes beyond his perspective. So I think there are several ways we can break this psalm down just glancing at it. Uh, but I think we, really it breaks down in two major sections. If it's like, a, it's like a mountain climb, verses 1 to 14, we see Asaph's descent down the mountain and into the valley. And in verses 15 to the close, verse 28, I see Asaph's ascent or reascent back up the mountain. So another way to put both of those steps is descent. You see bitter doubt. In his ascent, we see a refined faith. Now before we dive into the first section of bitter doubt, uh, let's get a running start for Psalm 73. We've mentioned it in passing that while Psalms are one big collection, they are broken down into five uh, smaller collections, five different books. So if you're looking at um, this Bible, you'll see Psalm 73 is the first Psalm of book three. And so you'll likely see that in your Bible. And book three goes from Psalm 73 to 89. And most of the Psalms in book three deal with some kind of crisis. And the majority of them are written by this guy, Asaph. This is 11 of the books and of the Psalms in books uh, three are written by Asaph. Who is this guy? Probably not one of uh, the veggie tales you've heard of, Asaph. But he's in there, I promise you. You mainly see Asaph in the book of 1 Chronicles. Asaph um, was appointed by David as the chief musician in the tabernacle. And Asaph wrote many songs of praise that people used in temple worship long after he was gone. Asaph had a great legacy, including here, like today, we are still reading one of the psalms he wrote. Think of that, Asaph. That's who he is. What does Asaph go through? See his first part of his journey, bitter doubt. And bitter doubt. And we can follow where Asaph went, his descent down into the valley. And really, you see, Asaph himself is our guide throughout the journey. It's, it's, he's the one who's the narrator. And he can look back on the entire situation. He's speaking in the past tense right from the start. Verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. It communicates He's made it out to the other side, and he lives and survives to tell the tale. And right away, just from that, we get, all right, there's maybe some hope that I can make it through the same struggle. Look at how he begins, even in that little word, truly. It'd be one thing to say, God is good to Israel. True statement. But Asaph says, truly, God is good to Israel. Someone who says it like that is someone who has been convinced of that truth. Truly, God is good to Israel. Maybe Asaph anticipates people who read his psalm or sing it to be people who are like him. Truly, God is good to Israel, he says. Well, you, friend, you might not be convinced right now, but even I wasn't convinced for a time. But I'm telling you, truly, this is the case. We see casting shadows of how Jesus uh, talked all throughout the Gospels. All those, all those times he says, truly, I say to you, or verily, verily, if you're reading the King James, I say to you. It's akin to saying something like, I mean business. Read my lips. Take this to the bank. Truly, God is good to Israel. So he could say that looking back. And that, you think about, it, that's his conclusion to the whole matter. God is good. Isn't that the crux of most questions and doubts about God? I mean, sure, like the intellectual arguments, those are worthy to have, and many people have them. Have, those are important conversations. But I would wager most questions and doubts come more about God's character than God's existence. So in light of what we're going through, in light of what we see, that's what most people doubt. But the question is, Absolutely still relevant. 
So the skeptic may grant, all right, God exists. But what kind of God is he? Well, Psalm 73 is going to argue and maintain that God is good. Specifically, he's good to Israel, to those to whom he's promised to be good. He's good to the pure in heart, to those who are at their core level of their desires, their motives, their purpose, love God. Jesus, Matthew 5, the Beatitudes said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And Christians understand that those who are pure in heart ultimately have a cleansed heart. Cleansed not by anything that they've done, but cleansed by Christ's blood shed and washed away their sin so that they can stand pure before God at the level even of their hearts. And when that happens, it overflows into practical everyday life experience. It makes a difference in your life. God is good to those he's promised to be good to. We think here of Romans 8.28. All things work together for good. For those who, for, the, for who? For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So here's Asaph, right at the beginning of this psalm, lays out that truth, states his thesis and his conclusion, and he's going to ask, is that really true? Is God really good? That's a relevant question. What made Asaph question God's goodness? In particular, what made him question God's goodness to his people? You can glance at the whole section after uh, verses 1 to th- uh, actually through 3 through 14. Just glance at what made Asaph question. To summarize, the evidence that Asaph has tells him that there are no apparent benefits to loving or living for God. I see no apparent advantage to do that based on the evidence I have. That's what Asaph spills out. And so specifically, he says he's envious of what he sees. To envy people is to say, I want what they have. I'm bitter that they have it and that I don't because they don't deserve it, and I do. To have what somebody else has, to be bitter about it, because they don't deserve it, and we do. There's envy. And to have envy is bad enough. But who is Asaph envious of? He's envious of the arrogant. Boy, is that a low place to be. To even recognize that somebody's arrogant and to still have envy of them. So who are these people? Who are these arrogant? Who are these wicked? And what do they have that makes Asaph so envious? Well, Asaph takes his paintbrush and paints a portrait of these people. And to mix metaphors a little bit, the portrait's kind of like a casserole too. Because he comes in like three different layers. So I think we can see, I'm not going to go through all the details of Uh, 4 to 12, which is his portrait of these people. But I think three things come out to the four, three different layers of the casserole here. At the top layer, Asaph sees that these people have everything they want. They have everything they need. They can do anything they want to do, and they don't have to do anything that they don't want to do. These people have it made completely. Carefree living. Look at verse 4. No pangs until death. Bodies are fat and sleek. Carefree in abundance. He says straight up in verse 12, they are always at ease. Verse 5, he says, not in troubles as others are. They don't have what they have because of all their hard work and elbow grease. They're not the ones putting in 60 hours a week up at Charter Steel. No. These are those who have everything and don't work to get it. They don't have the hard responsibilities or even the struggles that us regular people do. Look at the second part of verse 7. Their hearts overflow with follies. If this wasn't bad enough, they do whatever they want and they get away with it. But there's another layer to the casserole. See the second layer? They not only have all this, everything that they want, everything that they need, don't have to do anything, do anything that they want. 
but they are convinced in their heads that they got to that point because of themselves. These people convince themselves that their success is all because of them. Pride is their necklace, verse 6 says. And pride mixed with power produces tyranny, produces condescension. They are superior to other people, and other people must know it. Whether that's through violence, in the second part of verse 6, or whether that's through malice or oppression, verse 8. So then we get to the, the, the deepest part of the casserole, kind of like the mushy, liquidy part. The deepest layer of these people, probably the worst part, is that the product of their easy and prideful lives, they don't see a need for God. They don't need God. Verses 9 and 11. They curse God. And it's reinforced that that's okay for them to do that by how their people treat them in verse 10. So these, these are the people who say, I have everything I need and want. I do anything I want. I have no troubles. It's all because of me. And other people eat out of my hand. Really, you think about it, not only do they not need God, they are God themselves. Well, people aren't like that anymore, right? We might think of obvious examples first. Uh, people like the Kardashians. Um, not to bash the Kardashians, it's not to say you can't watch the show. Uh, uh, but the Kardashians, like, what are they famous for? Like, it's kind of famous for being famous at this point. We think of obvious examples of, you know, this portrait here. Maybe we think of uh, rock bands that pack stadiums, have millions of fans. And these are the bands who just celebrate a debauched lifestyle and literally curse God. I think it goes beyond these examples, though. I think the power of envy, of the evidence that we see, is more subtle than that. It's more subtle than the obvious examples. I think it's most powerful, at least for us, of all the narratives of what the good life is. All the narratives that tell us what, what is actually good, prosperous living. Because that's subtle. That's in our news feeds. That's on our commercials. That's on our screens. That's in our books. That's in our conversations. You see, the good life, according to the narratives around us, is to have carefree living. The good life is if you're young, you're beautiful, you're carefree, you never work, and you're always on vacation. Doesn't it seem some people like live like that? That's the picture of the good life. So Asaph looks at these people, and verses 13 to 14, he looks at these people, looks at the evidence, what he sees. And then he looks at himself and says, boy, this seems pretty useless. I'm really not doing, I'm doing this for nothing. Have you ever felt that way? I think it's worth taking time to dissect how Asaph got to this low point just so that we make sure and we can recognize if we are following in his footsteps and that we can turn and get off that path. I think we notice at least three things that were messed up about Asaph and that brought him to this low point. Three things that were messed up. First, Asaph had messed up desires. Asaph had messed up desires. So you think about it. How did his questioning of God begin? Verse 3, it began with envy. Think of how envy works. What's one of the ways that Asaph could have avoided this problem in the first place? For Asaph, envy wouldn't have worked. He wouldn't have been envious or bitter against the wicked's prosperity if he wasn't so caught up with having earthly prosperity. If he wasn't so invested in that, it wouldn't have affected him. He has his heart, his desires in the wrong place. Isn't that how it works on us? Aren't we the same way? I mean, don't we resent people we deem successful because we secretly want their lives? 
I mean, we may not be the fans of the Kardashians, but I mean, it'd be kind of cool to be the Kardashians. And if we got what they had, what they have, we'd, be, we'd end up just like them. So Asaph's desires were messed up, not just because he wanted bad things. You can have messed up desires and want good things, but want good things too much. And when we get to this point of envy, we convince ourselves that what we have is never enough. What we have is never enough. You think of how powerful that is. That worked in the Garden of Eden. (laughs) Adam and Eve caught envy, and they became convinced that paradise wasn't enough. So, friend, how are you doing in your desires? What are you giving your heart to? What are the things that influence and shape your desires? Do you want the right things? Do you want good things too much? If that's the case, that's the hotbed for envy and discontent. Second second thing that was messed up in Asaph. Asaph had messed up vision. Asaph had messed up vision. It needs more than a trip to lens crafters. So we recognize how Asaph's troubles got started. Wanting the wrong things. But how did he come to his conclusion? How how did he come to his conclusion? What did he use? What tool did he use? Look again in verse 3. He says, When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So his dreary and dismal conclusion came from what he saw. That's what he used. Friends, it's just, it's common sense for us that that's a bad idea. Some phrases like, don't judge a book by its cover. Now, just a cap, like a side note, like sometimes that works. You can judge a book by its cover, sometimes. But normally, it is a good practice not to draw conclusions based just on what you see. And that's what Asaph is doing. By judging based only on what he saw, Asaph shut down the possibility that there is a larger explanation to what he sees. Nope, I'm just going to shut it down. This has to be how it is. It has to be this simple. Can't be nuanced at all. I'm going to jump to the conclusion just based on what I see. And if he searched for the rest of the story, Asaph would see it's a bit more complicated than what he sees. We can't help but to see outward things. And friends, we can't help even but to compare ourselves to other people who we see. The question is, what will we do after we do that? What will we do after we, see, we take in what we see? Will we just jump to conclusions? Friends, you shouldn't do that. Because the outward usually doesn't show the whole story. So search for the rest of the story. See, Asaph assumes based on what he sees. And assuming just isn't even a bad way to reach a conclusion, it's a lazy way to reach a conclusion. All right, third thing, third thing that's messed up in Asaph. It's kind of a product of the other two. Asaph had messed up theology. Asaph had messed up theology. So if you think about it, you have messed up desires, you want wrong things, you want good things too much. If you have a messed up vision, you can't see any other explanation besides what you just see with your eyes. Can't be any other further explanation besides that. Inevitably then, you will have a messed up view of God and how God works. And you know what an obvious example of this, just one, is the prosperity gospel. Seriously, that's, that's the process of it. The prosperity gospel that uh, God wants to give you health, wealth, and happiness here begins by appealing to messed up desires. It begins by appealing to things that we shouldn't give our hearts to. And then it goes to messed up vision because there there can't be any further explanation beyond what we see. Because the prosperity gospel has no room to explain how bad people who curse God might be rich and how good people who love God might not have nothing Prosperity gospel has no room for that. So they have messed up desires, they have messed up vision, and what do you expect? Those things shape their view of God. And God must fit in that box. 
That's backwards for how it should work. So how it should work is that you start at the opposite end. You start with God and who he says he is, and you let God shape your desires, and you let God shape what you see and what you take in. So you might say, just in light of that, all right, well, I get the dangers of the prosperity gospel. Like, I'm good there. I'm set. You know, I don't turn on TBN. You might say, I already know I shouldn't mess with that. And you know, I, I really don't struggle with envying rich or successful people. To that, I would say, praise God you're in that place. Praise God. But is God, is God really the center? I mean, I, I think there's something you could ask yourself. I think you could ask, what could God take away that would make you question who he is? What could God take away that would make you question who he is? That's a hard thing to think about. And I'm not saying that he could take it away and you can't be devastated. I'm talking about he takes it away and you throw in the towel. And you give up on who God is. And you curse God. Is there something like that for you? Friend, I know it's hard to think about, but if there's something like that for you, that means you only worship God because he gives you that thing. So that means that thing must be more important to you than God is. And ipso facto, that means that thing must be your God, not God himself. Oh, that's harsh. That's hard. But friends, we love things and people better when we don't expect them to do the things for us that only God can do himself. So at this point for Asaph, God wasn't enough. God himself wasn't enough. But it's not the end of the story. So Asaph descends into the valley, but he will again ascend back up the mountain. And what's necessary to do that? If you're going one way and you have to go the other way, what do you have to do? You have to turn around. Right, it's not hard. Don't, it's not, don't have to make it harder than it is. If you could say it in, um, you know, modern, hip, young lingo, Asaph checked himself before he wrecked himself. Okay. But seriously, what makes the difference in Asaph turning around? Verse 15. He starts to correct his vision. He's begun to turn away from himself, just drowning in self-interest and self-pity. And he starts to ask, is what I'm thinking, is what I'm doing really right? Am I really taking in the big picture? Is what I'm doing right, not just for me, is what I'm doing right just in general? And he continues in verse 16 that he has no idea how to answer his dilemma. But he's thinking. He's actually trying He's trying to make sense of it, even if it is a wearisome task. So maybe you're here today and you're a Christian, but you're questioning God's goodness. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian because you're still questioning God's goodness. Or maybe you know somebody like that. Are you like Asaph here? Are you listening to yourself? Are you asking, is what I'm thinking and doing really right? Because, you know, we don't always have right thoughts, believe it or not. Maybe, maybe you do, but I don't. I know that. And we don't always come to the right conclusions. So friends, have you tested your thoughts? Have you tested your questions? Have you tested your conclusions? So those who aren't Christians and who doubt God's goodness may accuse Christians of being simpletons, mindless, and gullible. And friends, sometimes we earn that criticism. But if that's you or somebody you know, I would just encourage you, don't hold a double standard. Don't hold a double standard. You want Christians to be mindful of what they believe, and we should be. But friend, are you mindful of what you believe? See, most people are like one-year-olds. Hear me out. They're not one-year-olds in every way. If you're watching a one-year-old and she's playing with something that she shouldn't be playing with, what's, what's one tactic you could use to like, get her to stop? Just one of them. There's a lot of possibilities. One is to... Direct her to something else. Divert the t attention. So here, look at this shiny thing. Here, play with that. I think we're really like that. I think that keeps us from 
questioning our questions, thinking about hard things, thinking through what we believe. We're just distracted. Here, look at this shiny thing. Oh, that gets boring. Here, look at this other shiny thing. Oh, that gets boring. Oh, don't ignore all the really important stuff. Just look at these shiny things. That's how our whole society is set up. And as Christians, it's possible for us to be affected in the same way. We have to take stock, take inventory every now and again and say, like, am I distracted? Am I overly distracted? And put it away for a little bit. So, friend, you owe it to yourself to ask hard questions about what you say you believe. Because I guarantee you there's a book written about one of your questions. Christians have been thinking about this for thousands of years. There's no way nobody else has gone through uh, a question and hasn't had the same question as you. I'm not saying you're going to come and be satisfied with the answers, but I'm saying there are resources. But Christians, we need to point our fingers at ourselves here a little bit too. We shouldn't be surprised when we hear the criticism that Christians are mindless when we never think through why we believe what we believe. We don't know why we believe what we believe. So Christian, do you wrestle through hard questions? First Peter says we should be able to give a reason for the hope that is within us. So friend, why do you love Jesus? Why do you believe that he rose from the dead? What is your only hope in life and death? If you wrestle through those kinds of questions. If you never wrestle through hard questions, you'll leave yourself vulnerable to trials and experiences in your life that will force you to answer your questions and then you will have no defense so again, we're like one-year-olds. So here, what's one, of the, what's one of the reasons you put one-year-olds in a nursery? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but one of them is so that you expose them to kind of nasty stuff like germs. <laughs> right? It's, it's, it sounds weird. It sounds counterintuitive. But when, they build, when they're exposed to germs, what happens? They build up antibodies. They build up defenses against getting really, really sick. Thinking through why we believe what we believe, asking hard questions, is a way to build up antibodies. It's a way, it's a way to build up defenses so that when really hard times come, we will at least be ready. So if you're asking where to start with that, I would just say, you know, Engage well in church life. Like, engage with sermons. Reflect on the passage. Read it ahead. Engage with your Bible. Read other books. I'd be happy to help. Just like, pastors are given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's why I am here. Ask me. It's not embarrassing. It's okay. All right, back to verse 17. Asaph fights to understand why good things happen to bad people and why bad things happen to good people. And Asaph's starting to rub his eyes and come awake. And he knows that he has to see beyond himself. There's got to be a bigger story. There's got to be more of an explanation than my self-absorbed conclusion. And he gets to that point in verse 17 when he aims to see everything from God's perspective. By going into the sanctuary of God, what Asaph communicates is, all right, God, I'm going to see things, I'm going to try to see things how you see them. I'm going to try to see things from your point of view. No longer am I going to come to you based on who I say you are. I'm going to come to you based on who you say you are. I'll play ball a little bit here. So seeing this from God's point of view, Asaph finds that the only way his dilemma is resolved of why bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people, the only way that... Is really a satisfying solution is if this life isn't all that there is. It's that this, this life isn't all that there is. That it, God will bring justice and God will make everything right. It's like, you think about it, the problem of evil exists for everybody. It's for everybody. You think that we can't solve it either. Either there's hope or there's none. If it's left in our hands, there are too many wrongs that have been done for us to correct them all. We can't do it. But God affirms over and over again in his word that this isn't all that there is and that he's bringing justice and that he's making all things right. So friends, that means that while there are sweet things to experience right now, the Bible is clear that 
this isn't what we're waiting for here. The Bible's clear that this isn't our best life now. Our best life is then. The Bible's clear that we're pilgrims on our way home. The Apostle Paul said, if we have hope in Christ for this life only, we are most to be pitied. He'd be a fool for suffering so much for Christ's sake if this is it. But why not? If, if this isn't it and we can't keep it, it's like Jim Elliott, the missionary, says, if we can't keep what's here, why not give it away to gain what we can never lose? Why not do that? So seeing from God's perspective, Asaph sees all these things with fresh eyes. You look at verses 18 to 20. He sees the, the wicked with fresh eyes. He sees, like, it's not that smart, really, to envy what they got going on for them. Because they got, like, a tissue-thin paper barrier between them and seeing God face to face. And that will not end up well to stand before a holy God all in your sin. That can happen in a nanosecond. Everything they have, gone. And then their life will seem like a dream, he says. And we experience this. You ever notice that the, when your dreams are most intense, it's usually right before you wake up? And then when you wake up, what happens? Poof, it's gone. Like what seemed so real wasn't real, and it's not reality. And most of the time, you forget it. That's what this is like when the wicked come face to face with God. So friend, hearing that, and, and if you haven't, if you're not cleansed from your sin, haven't come to Christ, like don't see that as, see that as a kindness. Not to spur away God's hand of mercy, but to take it. Want to know more about what that means? Be happy to talk about it. Again, one of the reasons why we're here. Be happy to talk about that with you. But he sees from God's perspective, he sees the wicked, he sees like it's not really that smart to envy them. But he sees himself from a new perspective. Remember verses 21, 22. That failing to consider God's perspective for him, that was senseless. It was ignorant. It was arrogant. To think that we are the source of all knowledge and explanation Friends, that is the height of arrogance. Commentator Jim Boyce says, whenever we fail to learn from God and instead begin to trust our own contrary judgments on anything, we start to act like animals. The beasts of verse 22. The animals which have no real awareness of God and we begin to act like animals too. So Asaph finally realizes, could it be that God's ways are higher than my ways? Could it be that God actually knows more than I do? Could it be that there is a bigger explanation from God than what I just see? Absolutely, that's obvious. So Abraham sees he's ignorant. So he sees with these fresh eyes, trying to see from God's perspective. He sees the wicked with fresh eyes. He sees himself with fresh eyes. And the last thing, it's novelty. Seeing from God's perspective, he sees God with fresh eyes. Here's verses 24 to 26. And remember the original question. Is God really good? Asaph says, yes. Even through all his doubt and questioning, even through the dumb time in his life, and how much can we testify how, much, how many times the Lord has, has brought us through dumb times in our lives. He's been good and faithful and even through all that, Asaph says, God's been here. God's been with me. God's been gentle and kind and gracious. And he, recognize, he recognizes that he's going to be like that forever. Like he's not going away. And he realizes that there is nothing stronger and more stable than the Lord. He realizes that there is nothing and no one more sweet than the Lord. As he asks, like, God is going to outlast all the glory of the things that he's made. So why wouldn't I give myself to him? That's how Asaph gets back up. In the last couple minutes, again, want to ask, how do we follow that path? I think two different questions we should ask ourselves. Getting back up to the mountain, seeing that God actually is good. Do you really believe what you believe about what comes after this life? Do you really believe what you believe about what comes after this life? Friend, if you think that this life is it, do you really believe that? 
I mean, do you, do you act like you believe it? I'd wager to say that most people who believe that this life is it don't follow that to, their logical, to its logical conclusion. I mean, if everything's just going to end up bad anyway, and there's nothing that we can do about it, and you'll just poof out of existence when you die with no accountability, you should be as self-serving as possible. You really, that's the logical end. Your motivation for everything you do should be to advance your agenda. You should even do this in subtle ways. You should navigate the rules and structures of society to survive, to gain acceptance, and you should be self-serving in your relationships too, even in subtle ways so that other people won't notice, so that every, all the love that you get from other people, that's the reason why you love them. You should be self-serving at every level if this is it. As much as you can and as for long as you can, you should live the life described in Isaiah 22. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's actually the most rational way to live life if this is it. Maybe people who believe that do that in subtle ways, but very few people who believe that actually live like that. I think it's because they, in their heart of hearts, they don't know that's the case. That, it's, that this life isn't all that there is. And I assure you, it's not. And there is a day appointed for everyone, Hebrews 9, 27, when you will face God. And how will you be prepared for that day? We have to pose the same questions to ourselves, Christians. Do we believe what we believe about what comes after this life? Asaph uses words like glory and heaven. Do we believe that? If we do, do we act like we believe it? Do we live like we believe it? But we don't when we invest so much in what is here and temporary and what will just go away. Look, it's not to say that there aren't really cool things here. You should make a bucket list. There are a lot of cool things. Man, don't give yourself to this. It's okay that if you don't fill out your bucket list and you don't meet it all. Like, you don't have to be devastated by that because this isn't what we're waiting for. So live life now. But live life for then. Christians, if we really believe that glory awaits, and we can be sure of that, so we stand in the finished work of Christ, you look at the whole book of 1 John, written literally so that we may know we have eternal life. So if we know that, then why not, give it all, why not lay it all on the field right now? If God has us to the end, guaranteed us our life after this, why not lay it all right now? In a very real way, Christians, those in Christ, who God can't let go, in a very real way, they are invincible. I'm not talking about you, invincible like you go out and walk in traffic, invincible. That's careless. I'm talking about invincible as boldness. Look at how the apostles lived. They were so convinced that that's guaranteed, so they're going to leave it all out on the field here because this isn't what we're living for anyway. Second question. In light of Asaph's ascent, almost done, I promise. What is your treasure? What, it, what do you hold most precious? I'm not talking about like Gollum, Lord of the Rings, precious, weird. I'm talking about what you love and cherish the most. I think when you read verse 25, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. God should be here because there's nothing more precious than God. And boy, do we settle for less. We settle for less. You think about how people think about heaven. I can't wait to see people who, who aren't here anymore in heaven. I can't wait for that. That's a sweet part. But you know who's going to be in heaven? The Lord. <laughs> in fact, if the Lord wasn't in heaven, it wouldn't be heaven. It'd be hell. We settle for less. So our treasure is the Lord because there is nothing and no one more precious than the Lord. It's like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, 
it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Don't settle. So when we catch a real vision of this, we'll no longer focus on what we lost when we came to Christ. We will focus on what we gained. That's what Paul does. Philippians 3, I count everything lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Who else has worth that surpasses everything? Don't settle for anything less. So, friend, if you're not here, if, like, Christ isn't the center and most precious, it's like, oh, man, like, I, I'm just not there. That's okay. It's good to be honest. You'd be like the man in Mark 9. Tell the Lord you want him to take that place. Tell the Lord you want to believe like that and to help you. Maybe verses 23 to 26 be your prayer to the Lord. Write it on your heart. And thank God and cast yourself on Christ that ultimately we are not saved by the sincerity of our faith. We are saved by the object of our faith. We're saved by Christ, not by us. So having gone low, come back up. Asaph restates his conclusion in verses 27 to 28. Is God really good? Yes. And we can experience that now. Because of Christ's work for us on our behalf, the book of Hebrews says that we can draw near to the throne of grace now. We enter cleansed by his blood. So we look back on Asaph's whole journey. We see how has he ended up where he ends up? Again, Jim Boyce is helpful, pointing out a one way we could trace it. Look at all the different pronouns throughout Psalm 73, the dominant ones, I mean. You up to verse 12, the dominant pronoun is they. That's who his eyes are on, them. Verses 13 to 17, the dominant one is I. Conclusions about them for me. From verses 18 to 22, the dominant pronoun is you. Now God's in the picture. But then in the end, verses 23 to 28, there's a combination. The dominant pronouns are you and I, the Lord and us. We are his, he is ours forever. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are patient. Thank you. God, uh, be patient with us. Be patient with us through our questions. Help us to fight through them, not to ignore them. Help us to wrestle through them, not to set them aside. And help us to see you for who you say you are. Help us to take in more than just what we see, our perspective. But prove that you're good to us and that you're good to us forever. And will we settle for nothing less? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.